I'd invite you to turn to the book of Hebrews chapter 11. This morning we'll be looking at verses 8 through 12. Hebrews chapter 11. Verses 8 through 12 this morning. Hebrews 11, 8 through 12, I'll be reading from the English Standard Version this morning. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him, of the same promise, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God, and by faith Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. This morning I want to talk to you about a faith that looks forward. A faith that looks forward. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. It's faithful and true. I pray that as we look into your scripture and as we study it this morning, I pray that it would touch our hearts and our lives and that we would hear the truth of your word and that we would be influenced by your word. You speak to us that your word is powerful and it pierces our hearts and our soul and divides us under even our thoughts, God. And so, Father, I pray that this morning that would happen, and that we would be a people that are changed because, not because of good preaching, but because your word has come and influenced our lives. I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. A faith that looks forward. After discussing the faith of Abel, Enoch, and Noah, the author of Hebrews now turns his attention to Abraham. And it's no surprise that Abraham would be included in the hall of faith, but it is still significant. Many would say that by far Abraham is the greatest example of faith in the Bible. We do not find anyone else in the Bible where there is such detail given about their faith. In Genesis chapter 12 through Genesis chapter 25, we have this epic life of Abraham and his faith. His faith was so celebrated in the Old Testament that there was a Levitical confession of prayer that spoke of his faith. It was this, you are the Lord God who chose Abraham and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans, and named him Abraham. You found his heart faithful to you. The New Testament also holds up the faith of Abraham as a great example, as the one who is the father of all who believe. It says, consider Abraham. He believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. Galatians chapter 3, verse 6 and 7, and then Hebrews chapter 2, verse 16, we read about the faith of Abraham. And James says that because of Abraham's faith, 
Abraham was called God's friend in James chapter 2, verse 23. Abraham is thus the perfect example of faith. And so because of the greatness of Abraham's faith, we have much to gain from his example. This text will reveal to us the essentials of faith as we see in Abraham a faith that looks forward. In fact, the Apostle Paul asserts that it's not the Jews by physical birth that are descendants of Abraham, but those who believe are the true children of Abraham. It is through Abraham that God gave the covenant of grace by which we are saved. Our salvation rests in part on God's faithfulness to Abraham, and we are saved as a spiritual offspring from the promise of God to Abraham. It's not a surprise then that the chapter dealing with faith would devote so many more verses to Abraham than anyone else. Abraham's life is an illustration of verse 1. Now faith is assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, because it is faith that looks forward. And so let's look at that today. First, I want us to see the saving faith obeys God's call. Saving faith obeys God's call. The verse makes this point abundantly clear when it says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called. Back in the book of Genesis chapter 12, God calls Abraham to leave the country he is in. He is to leave his relatives, his father's house, and he is to go to the land that God will show him. Let me pause for a moment. Abraham is to go somewhere. And I like to imagine a conversation that took place in my head. God tells Abraham to go. Abraham says, where? And God says, I'll show you. Just go. He doesn't know where he's going. He's just supposed to go. And he has no idea where that is that he is supposed to go. And we know that that this is what transpires because God shows him because verse 4 of Genesis chapter 12 says, so Abraham went. And so he heard God say, go Abraham and I'll show you where to go. But he doesn't know where he's going. And Abraham goes. And as the Lord had told him and Lot went with him. And Abraham was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. So just to be clear, Abraham is 75 God shows up and says, Abraham, I want you to leave everything that you know. I want you to leave your country and everything that is familiar to you. And I want you to go where I will show you. And Abraham says, okay, and packs everything up and leaves. God called, God called and Abraham obeyed. Saving faith obeys God's call. Faith and obedience are not contradictory. They go together. And so... Let's break this down just a little bit this morning. First, God calls, then we obey. First, God calls, then we obey. Before God called Abraham, he lived in Ur of the Chaldees. That's modern-day Iraq, if you don't know where that's at. And he was a pagan in a pagan city. He was descended from a line of, of idolaters. The point is that Abraham did not come up with this plan on his own. Abraham was not sitting around. He was a pagan in a pagan land. He wasn't sitting around thinking about God and this sort of thing. And, oh, I wonder what God would want me to do. That's not what's going on. We hear people say today um, this a lot. Well, follow your dreams. This was not what Abraham was doing. He was not 
following his dreams. He was following the call of God. His faith acted in response to God's call. God's call is the primary focus, and Abraham's obedience is a response. So God took the initiative from the beginning. God's sovereign grace goes forward with God's sovereign call to Abraham. This is vital for a few reasons. One, it teaches us that we should not act on our own apart from the word of God. Because faith rests on the revelation of his word. Christianity is not based on some sort of religious speculation like some people would have us believe or some sort of philosophy of men. But it's based, Christianity is based upon the revelation of God recorded for us in the word of God. And it also reveals to us that Abraham's salvation is based on God's sovereign choice and not anything special in Abraham at all. Abraham is not singled out because of his faith. That's not why Abraham singled out. Abraham is singled out because of God's grace. It has nothing to do with Abraham's faith. Abraham was a pagan idol worshiper when God came to him. He was not seeking God. He was in no way seeking God. When God called Abraham, he was saved because God sought him and his faith was preceded by God's call and responded to God's call. And that call came by grace alone, by God's sovereign choice. You say, well, prove that. Well, I will. We can look at the word call in Scripture and how it's used concerning salvation. It's used in Two different ways. Sometimes it's used to refer to a general call to everyone to repent and to believe. The gospel, like when Jesus said this, many are called, but few are chosen. Matthew chapter 22, verse 14. The word is also used in a specific sense in which many theologians label an effectual calling. This is how Paul uses it in Romans chapter 8, verse 30, when he writes, And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And so in this verse, Paul makes it clear that the called ones are those that he predestined, and he justified them, and he also glorified them. Elsewhere, Paul writes that God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his purpose and grace, which was granted in Christ Jesus from all eternity. And so when God calls his elect effectually, which is what he did with Abraham, he works through his spirit with them uh, to bring them to faith in Christ, which is what we read um, Christ say in John chapter 6, verse 44, when he says this, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So Jesus says, you can't come to me unless God who sent me draws you to me. And I will raise him up on the last day. God effectually called Abraham to follow him. That's what he did. And it had nothing to do with the faith of Abraham. And it had everything to do with the grace of God. So he says, follow him. Go, Abraham. The call, guess what? Didn't go to the whole city. We don't read that anywhere. It doesn't say God called the whole city. The call doesn't even go to the family of Abraham. It doesn't say that God called Abraham and his father 
Or God call Abraham and his brothers? Who'd God call? He specifically called one person out of the whole world. One person. Abraham. Specifically. And who responded to the call? Abraham responded. Because that's who God called. The, he responded with obedience. How did he respond? Because God gave him the faith to respond in the first place. Or he would have never responded. Because he was a pagan idol worshiper. He would have no reason to respond to the call of God. So first God calls. Then we obey. Concerning salvation, God calls effectually. And that is the only way that we can ever obey. Because it's His effectual calling. Because He's already given us the faith to respond to the call that He makes to us. And then we respond to it in faith. So we have God calling. We obeying. Then we see that obedience is the response of faith. The verse says that by faith Abraham obeyed. By faith Abraham obeyed. Genuine faith always obeys God. I noted last week that we are saved by faith alone, but not a faith that is alone. By its nature, faith results in obedience. One of the main problems faced in Christianity today, especially in Christianity in America, is we have espoused a faith that does not obey. If someone says they have faith, but they do not obey, then their faith is superficial and their faith is worthless. You say, well, that's harsh. It may be harsh, but it is true. Let me give you an example of how it's true. I have faith in parachutes. I have faith that if I'm going to jump out of a plane, then I need a parachute. In fact, I want to go skydiving. And if I have faith in parachutes and their necessity in skydiving, I can believe all I want to, but if I don't put a parachute on, and then I jump out of a plane, I'm going to die. I'm going to go splat on the ground. At that point, guess what? My faith in parachutes is worthless. I can say I believe in it all I want. I can say I have faith in parachutes, but until I actually use it, I don't really have the faith in a parachute. If you really believe in the necessity of a parachute, you will wear one when skydiving. You see, it demonstrates the reality of your faith. It's a demonstration of my faith. Saving faith is obedient faith. This is not adding to faith. Saving faith is not some single act where we say, well, I asked Jesus into my heart one time, and now I'm saved, and now I live however I want. That's not what we see. Saving faith is not reduced to that single act of receiving Jesus. Rather, saving faith receives Jesus and continues to trust in Jesus throughout the rest of life. The evidence of faith is the obedience, which is what this chapter is all about. Showing us what saving faith looks like. By faith comes obedience. Faith does not just look back to what God did in the past, but faith looks forward to what God promises to do in the future. Genuine saving faith is obedient faith. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father, who is in heaven, will enter. He who does the will of my Father, who is in heaven, 
will enter. Jesus told the Jews who said that Abraham was their father, but they sought to kill him. He says, if Abraham was your father, then you would do the deeds of Abraham. Obedience proves that faith is genuine. Abraham's faith causes him to go when he did not even know where he was going. God did not tell him until later that he was going to Canaan. God did not have some fancy chart or a graph showing him the, ven- the benefits. Oh, here's the, here's the positive and here's the negative, Abraham. There was not some sort of lovely home waiting for him. There was no cost analysis like this is how much it's going to cost you in order to go. We were talking in Sunday school how some of us research things to death. That would be me. I'd, well, I, I need to know how this is really going to work out, God. Okay, what do I buy this iPad or that iPad? You know, that's the kind of stuff I do. And then I'll spend nine months figuring out which one is the best. That, that, was, not the, that was not what's going on. He was to leave everything he knew, everything he was familiar with, and go, and Abraham risked everything based on the promise of God. His faith looked forward. He risked everything he had and said, okay, God, I'll go. Church, an obedient faith will abandon everything in order to follow Christ. We see that all through Scripture. Remember when Jesus called his disciples? They left everything, everything that they knew, and they followed Christ. The call to follow Jesus is not different than the call of salvation. It's the same call. We like to try to make it different. Like, oh, well, see, this call is the call to follow Jesus, and this call is the call of salvation. They are one in the same. They're not two separate calls. The call to follow Jesus is the call to salvation. It requires you to say, I am willing to abandon everything. Jesus himself made it clear when he said this, if anyone would come after me, so you're going to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. So he said, you're going to come after me? you got to deny yourself every single day and follow me. Jesus is speaking about gaining and losing one's soul for eternity. Obedient faith follows Christ at all costs, even if it means making a break with a family to do so. Jesus made this clear when he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and his wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot even be my disciple. Luke chapter 14. He's not saying that we should needlessly be jerks to our family and hate them. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying intentionally alienate your family. He's making it clear that if our closest loved one stands between us and him, our choice is him. I have seen even Christian parents try to steer their kids away from following Christ when they felt a call to ministry and their parents know it doesn't pay that well. And they felt, uh, and so they're like, oh, well, you know, you're not going to make that much money, so you shouldn't choose that for your career. Or people have felt a call to missionary service and parents don't want to see their kids go to another country. And so they try to steer them away from that. However, our love for Christ must be greater than our love for 
family. There are times when God's call will take us through difficulties and hardships and trials. This is not some sort of special call either. This is referring to God's call for salvation. It may mean persecution and rejection and it involves bringing all of who you are under the Lordship of Jesus Christ and it means all of your time and all of your possessions and all of your money is submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and saying, whatever you tell me to do with what I have, Lord, that's what I will do. That means that we should be seeking God's will in every single decision instead of our own will. It means that we are asking ourselves, how are we impacting the kingdom of God with what God has given to us? So let me ask you, does obedience characterize your life this morning? Have you obeyed God's call of faith? Or are you doing things your own way? Are you calling the shots or is God calling the shots? God knows what is best and he has the power to work all things out for our good. Obedience is a response of faith. Saving faith obeys God's call. And if you have not obeyed his call, then you are not saved. There is no such thing as a faith without obedience. Now, that doesn't mean you're not going to disobey sometimes. I'm saying there is no such thing as you saying that you have faith in Christ and you consistently disobey him. That's not faith. You're lost. You say, well, pastor, that's harsh. It is harsh, but it's consistent with what scripture clearly teaches us. Saving faith, secondly, saving faith makes us citizens of heaven and sojourners on earth. Saving faith makes us citizens of heaven and sojourners on earth. Abraham lived his life as a foreigner in the land of Canaan. By faith, Abraham beheld something that was in the future, but you know what? He never saw the fulfillment of it. Furthermore, the covenant promise uh, was passed to Isaac and to Jacob. This, I believe, is one of the hardest things for us to grasp as Christians, that though we live on this earth, and though we live in uh, the area that we live, you know, we live in Washington, Illinois, or we live in the United States of America, you know, one of the hardest things for us to understand is our citizenship is not on this earth. It's in heaven. We are merely passing through. And yet, so often, we try to get all we can on this earth, and we act like this is our permanent home, like we're going to be here forever. You're not going to be here forever. This is like your temporary dwelling place. So let me break this down for us a little bit. First, living the life of a sojourner. What is meant when we say living the life of a sojourner? Let's read about Abraham and see what verse 9 tells us. It says, by faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents, with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Here, Canaan is referred to as the promised land, but the irony in it is Abraham, though he was an heir of the promised land, never owned any of the promised land, except for the cave that he bought at full price to bury his wife Sarah. I love what Kent Hughes says when he puts it this way. He says, it is as if God promised you, and, and your descendants, the land of Guatemala. In obedience, you traveled there, but then you had to live the rest of your life in your camper. Not only you, but also your son's families lived in their campers. And you moved from place to place. John Calvin says, where was the inheritance when he had expected it? 
It might have indeed occurred instantly to his mind that he had been deceived by God. Furthermore, there was a famine right after Abraham arrived in Canaan that drove him from the land, and yet he returned and lived in the land by faith alone. Listen, church, this world is not our home. There will be times that we live in this world and we live in the conditions of this world and it will seem like it is a, a contradiction to the promise of God, especially to the word of faith preachers that preach to you that a life of faith means you're going to have all the health and all the wealth and, and just everything's just going to be the greatest if you have faith. But that view can't be supported by Scripture. Because sometimes... The people of God face trouble and failure and tribulation and peril and nakedness and persecutions and sorrows and the like. And Paul said he had nothing, yet he possessed everything. This world is not our home. We're just passing through. Abraham was a foreigner in a foreign land, dwelling in tents, yet his nephew moved to Sodom and lived in a house. And though Lot was a believer, he became tainted by the godless people who lived in Sodom. And Abraham lived as a foreigner and he remained distinct from the people. We are sojourners. And we must adopt the mindset of sojourners. I don't know if you've ever traveled to a foreign country, but if you have, you know that you stand out as different. I've been to Haiti and France and El Salvador on mission trips, and when I go, I stand out. I definitely don't look like a Haitian. I don't know if you know that or not, but I don't. I stand out. They know that I'm not Haitian. I'm not from El Salvador. I'm not from France. And even though I stand out and, I, and, and even though I try to kind of do their customs and that sort of thing, and I try not to offend them, but the truth is I think differently than they think. I live a different life than they live. I live by the customs of being an American. And they don't have that privilege. To live like I get to live. They, Haitians can't eat the food. I, there's no McDonald's in Haiti. At all. Shocking. They don't get, there's not Walmart. There's nothing like that for, uh, we can just go down there and order a Big Mac or whatever. That, that does not exist. And here's the thing. As Christians, our citizenship is in heaven. Our home is in heaven. So why do we treat earth like it's our permanent dwelling? We're merely passing through. Our attitude towards what success is and towards possessions and our purpose in life should all be radically different than the rest of the world because we are foreigners. The American dream should not be our dream because we are foreigners in this land. We are simply passing through. And you know, if we think that this is all there is to life, for us to come and accumulate all we can, then we would engage in all the activities that we can, no matter how immoral, because we think that it's going to bring us happiness because our hope is only found in this world. But our hope is beyond that, Christian. 
We are sojourners. Our hope is in Christ Jesus and our inheritance is eternal. So we don't need to be tight-fisted with things of this world and say, well, this is mine. I own this. I This belongs to me because you know what? Your treasure is not on this earth, but your treasure is in heaven. And that is where the best treasure is at. Saving faith makes us citizens of heaven so that we can live as a sojourner on earth. Don't pretend like this world is all you have. Because it's not. And so often we can peek into the life of the Christian and it looks as if this is all they have. And there's no evidence that their inheritance is in heaven. So I just say this. If we're really citizens of heaven, then we need to act like it. If we're really citizens of heaven, then we need to act like it. So live a life of a sojourner and realize that faith looks forward to eternity. Faith looks forward to eternity. Look at verse 10. Abraham was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Abraham was looking for more than a land. There's a contrast here. There's a city with foundations that stands in contrast to living in a tent where there is no foundation. God is both the architect and the builder of the city. Therefore, the foundation is solid and secure. This is a reference to the city above the heavenly Jerusalem, which is the eternal dwelling place of all of God's saints. The author of Hebrew is making it clear that Abraham's faith was a faith that looked forward to heaven. The author is saying that when Abraham left his father's country to head to Canaan, he was not just looking for a piece of real estate. He was not looking forward to the promise of a land. He was looking forward to the promise of a redeemer, which is fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. Abraham was looking to the promise of heaven. God did not promise the land of Canaan to Abraham, or God did promise the land of Canaan to Abraham's descendants, and he later gave them that land, but that land was never the full promise. It was an earthly picture of an eternal promise and the eternal city which God had prepared for His people. The point we ought to notice is the faith of Abraham. He believed that God was going to give him the land of Canaan, which was a type or symbol of the great land of heaven, the great city whose builder is God. This is why when Paul is speaking about justification by faith alone, he uses Abraham to illustrate how salvation works. The point that he is making is that people in the Old Testament were redeemed the same as people today are redeemed. There's only one way to salvation. Justification by faith alone. It was that way. It's that way now and it was that way then. Salvation is based on the merit of Christ. Not on the merit of animals that are sacrificed. Abraham's faith looked forward to the cross and eternity. Our faith looks back to the cross and then looks forward to eternity. The way of salvation is the same. Saving faith makes us citizens of heaven and sojourners on earth. This is how Abraham views himself and this is how we need to view ourselves. His focus was on heaven and our focus also needs to be on heaven. We need to focus and look to eternity, not look at this earth and what we can accumulate. Saving faith obeys God's call. It makes us citizens of heaven and sojourners on earth. And finally, faith overcomes the impossible by God's power. 
Faith overcomes the impossible by God's power. Abraham and Sarah were unable to conceive children. God had promised them nations of descendants. And to have nations of descendants, you have to have a son. To make things even worse, God had changed Abraham's name from Abram, which meant exalted father, to Abraham, which means father of a multitude. Yet he had no children. Can you, it's like it's a joke. Abraham has no, Abram has no children and God says, I'm going to change your name. You're the exalted father. Now you're going to be the father of a multitude. But you have no kids. God promised Abraham in Genesis chapter 17 that he would make him fruitful and make a nation out of him and that things would come from, great things would, and kings would come from him. However, there was a problem. They, they couldn't conceive children. And they're both old. They are given a promise that's biologically impossible to fulfill. Abraham was 99. Sarah was 90. She said, I am worn out. And my Lord is old. Shall I have pleasure? This verse says that Abraham's as good as dead. And that's basically what she's saying. But you know what? Faith overcomes the impossible. Now, there's different interpretations of verse 11. Some make Sarah the subject of the sentence, and some make Abraham the subject of the sentence. Problems that scholars have with Sarah being the subject of the sentence is with this phrase when it says, receives power to conceive. Literally in the Greek, it is power to deposit seed, which is a function only ever given to males. I'm not going to get into all the detail of the or the technical details of all that. It's just to say most contemporary New Testament scholars say that Abraham is actually the subject of the sentence. The view making Abraham the subject also uh, helps when considering in Genesis chapter 18, Sarah is rebuked for unbelief rather than being commended for faith. And when the Lord confronts her, she denies it rather than confesses her unbelief. And I hold to the view that the emphasis is on Abraham's faith and not Sarah's. But beyond that, the main thing we must see is that faith overcomes the impossible by God's power. So let's break that down real quick. Faith knows, faith knows that when humanity is impotent, God is sovereign and faithful. When humanity is impotent, God is sovereign and faithful. In Genesis, the Lord, after Sarah laughs about having a child, asks her this question, is anything too hard for the Lord? And then the Lord says, at the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. Sarah and Abraham both had to trust in the faithfulness of God, and God is sovereign over all. Now I want to be careful here, because some people take these verses, and they pull them out of context, and they misapply them, and and they act like God is some sort of genie in a bottle. And He will give us what we want. And when it doesn't happen, <clears throat> we become disappointed because God didn't give me what I wanted. The problem is not with God. The problem is with what His people are doing to trying to apply promises that we should never be applying to our lives. And this is where we must be careful. 
Yes, faith is powerful. Yes, faith has its confidence in God. Yes, faith knows that when humanity is impotent, God is sovereign and faithful. But that does not mean that faith means we get what we want. It does not say that if we have faith, we will be healed from every sickness and every disease and everything will be okay. I've watched health and wealth preachers blame someone that is sick and their illness has overtaken them and looking at them and saying, well, you just lack faith. Saying things like, if you had enough faith, God would heal you. How ridiculous is that? Last time I checked, God will do whatever He wants. And He'll do it when He wants to do it. Not because we want to misapply or misinterpret Scripture and bend Scripture to suit our own wants or needs. Nowhere does God promise that He will heal every disease of those that believe. If He did, then anyone with faith would live forever. They would never get sick. They would never have disease. But guess what? People like Kenneth Copeland and Paula White and Jesse Duplantis and many other faith healers will be lucky if they live to be a hundred. Now, with that said, do not think for one instant that God is not sovereign. Do not put God in a box and believe that He cannot go beyond our human abilities and do the remarkable if that's what He desires. There's nothing on the face of this earth that is impossible for God to do. Ephesians tells us, Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or even think. God can do more than we ask and He can do more than we can even think of according to the power at work within us. Abraham knew the situation was impossible. But he had faith. Listen church, faith is not without reason and reason is not without faith. Faith and reason go hand in hand. Abraham knew it was humanly impossible for him to become a father. And he weighed that against the fact that God had promised. And he knew that it was divinely impossible for God to break his word. So what must give? If God promised, and this is humanly impossible... Something has to give. And guess what? The human impossibility must give. And so he was certain that God would do what he said. You see, faith knows that when humanity is impotent, that God is sovereign and faithful. What humanity cannot do, God can do. And if God promised it, then His will must prevail over what humanity thinks it can accomplish. Our faith is not in ourselves, nor is it in faith, but our faith is in God who is faithful. We serve an awesome and powerful God. And what we cannot do, He can. And what we cannot accomplish, He can accomplish. But faith also, Trust that God keeps His Word. Faith trusts that God keeps His Word. Stop and think for a moment about what Abraham's faith got him. We often talk about faith in a way that makes people think that you will get all that you want from life if you just have faith. 
It got Abraham uprooted from his friends and family, never to see them again. It got him living in tents and moving from place to place everywhere he went. It seemed to only be temporary. He did get to see the birth of the son of promise. He lived for 15 years after the birth of Jacob, but he never did see any of Jacob's sons. Abraham did not live long enough to see the fulfillment of the promise that God made to multiply his descendants as the stars or the sand. And as we said, the only piece of land that he ever owned was where he buried his wife. He died in faith without receiving the promises. How? How could he possibly do that? God made this promise, and yet he died in faith, never receiving them in this life. Because as we stated, his faith focuses on the eternal, not on his own life. And he trusted that God would keep his word. This is the secret of how we can have a confident faith. We view our difficulties and our hardships and our struggles through the clear light of God's promises. We can be assured that God makes good on his word. And that's what we hope in. God had spoken to Sarah and Abraham that they heard it. And in spite of the fact that it seemed impossible that the promise be fulfilled, they believed. I love what Martin Luther said. If you would trust God, you must learn to crucify the question, how? If you would trust God, you must learn to crucify the question, how? Because there is no rhyme or reason. You, you can't ask God, how? If he says, I'm going to do it, you don't need to ask how. He's going to do it. He who called you is faithful. He will surely do it. This is what our heart rests upon. Faith leaves the fulfillment of the promise up to God. It just knows it's true. Faith trusts that God keeps His word. It looks beyond what's the here and now. It looks beyond the promise and it looks to the promiser. It knows that God can be depended on. It rests in the immutability of God knowing that God can't lie. Knowing that God is all-powerful. Knowing that God is sovereign over all things. It trusts in the character of God, not just in, the, in, in those promises that God gives. Listen, faith trust in the promises of God without trusting in the character of God is a worthless faith. A faith that says, hey, I trust in God's promises, but I don't trust in His character. That's not faith at all. John Owen said, the former object of faith in the divine promises is not the thing promised in the first place, but God himself in his essential excellencies of truth or faithfulness and power. Our faith is in God himself. And he keeps his word. Abraham didn't see the promise fulfilled. We still had faith. It's so hard for us to understand that God's time is not our time. Abraham lived 175 years. If we look at the promise from the time frame of Abraham, we would say that God's promises failed. Abraham dies having a son and two grandsons. How is that a fulfillment of the promise that God made that his descendants would be innumerable? However, from God's time frame, the true children of Abraham, which is all of those who believe in Abraham's seed, meaning all those who believe in Jesus Christ, number 
into the billions. You see, we're limited in our time frame. But God is not. And we look at things from our time frame, we see things that perhaps don't fit with God's promises. But from God's time frame, He who promises is faithful. George Mueller displayed a life of faith. After living life as a wild youth, he was converted in his early 20s. He obeyed God's call by living a life of faith and obedience. He lived his life in such a way that the world had trouble even comprehending it. He and his wife sold all of their earthly possessions and they founded an orphanage and lived by faith alone, making their needs and those of the orphans known only to God in prayer. They often faced insurmountable problems that were overcome by faith in God's power. In 1877, Mueller was on board a ship that was stalled off the coast of Newfoundland in the dense fog. The captain had been on the bridge for 24 hours when Mueller came up to see him. Mueller told him, that he had to be in Quebec by Saturday afternoon. The captain replied, it is impossible. Very well, said Mueller. If your ship cannot take me, God will find some other way. I've never broken an engagement for 52 years. Let's go down to the chart room and pray. The captain wondered what lunatic asylum Mueller had escaped from. Mr. Mueller, he said, do you know how dense this fog is? No. My eye is not on the density of the fog, but on the living God who controls every circumstance of my life. Mueller knelt down and prayed simply. When he had finished, the captain was about to pray, but Mueller put his hand on the captain's shoulder and told him not to pray. First, you do not believe he will. And second, I believe he has. And there is no need whatever for you to pray about it. The captain looked at, looked at Mueller in amazement. Captain, he continued, I have known my Lord for 52 years and there has never been a single day that I have failed to get an audience with the king. Get up, captain, and open the door and you will find the fog is gone. The captain walked across to the door and opened it. The fog was gone. Church, I wish I could tell you great stories of faith like that from my life. I wish I could say, here's a great story of faith. Truth is, I, like many of you, have probably had great moments of faith. I could tell you the story of a time I prayed for rain in Haiti in the middle of a drought with a voodoo priest who didn't believe in how it rained for two or three hours that night. I could tell you how I walked into the middle of a field in super summer because we were supposed to have a block party and stood there alone and prayed in the middle of the rain that it would stop. And it stopped. Truth is, I've had great moments of faith. But just like you, I've had weakness in faith. And when we look at the faith of someone like George Mueller, and Abraham, it should challenge us to grow in a life of faith that God is faithful. And that we should obey God's call to salvation by faith. And that you and I should live as sojourners on this earth, knowing that we are citizens of heaven, 
and that we should live that way, not in our own strength, but by faith. And it tells us that we should look at our problems and our fears and our circumstances and our sorrows and that we can understand that by God, that God in His power could overcome the impossible if He so chooses to do it. But that He is in no way obligated to do it. And that we trust in His sovereignty knowing that the reward of our faith, the reward of your faith is not your circumstance. The reward of your faith is not that God is going to do some great thing. He may choose to do that. But that is not the reward of your faith. The reward of your faith is God Himself. And nothing can take that away. Because God keeps His Word. And so I'd ask you this morning, do you know Christ as Savior? Have you placed your faith in Him and Him alone and His death on the cross for your sin. Do you know Him as Savior? And if you say, yes, Pastor, I do, then I would ask, do you live a life of faith? And is it evident in you? In other words, does an outside world looking in on your life see faith that's evident? Or are you living for the things of this world? Do you understand, Christian, that this is not your home? You can only live a life of faith if it's all completely surrendered to God and say, God, this is not where I live. You own it all. Let me live a life of faith in you. Are you doing that this morning? We're going to sing in a moment and give you a chance to respond. This morning, if you would say, Pastor, I need to I need to place my faith in Christ. Maybe you've never done that. I'll be standing down front. I'd love to grab your hand and chat with you about that. And we could talk after the service. Maybe this morning you would say, Pastor, I, I know Christ, but I'm not living that life of faith. It's not evident in my life. I don't think an outside world looking on would see that in my life. Maybe you just need to Surrender that to the Lord. Maybe you just need to say, Lord, help me to live as a sojourner on this earth. Help me to stop caring about the things of this world and care more about you. And you can do that in your pew or you can come up here and I'd be glad to pray with you or you can pray at the altar on your own if that's something you want to do. And if you need to talk afterwards, I'd be glad to do that. But however the Lord leads, I pray that you would respond. Let's close in prayer.